0: Hey, it's Noel. Before the show starts, I want to invite you to take a survey that we're running right now. If you have a few minutes, we would appreciate you going to Vox.com slash podcast survey and telling us what you think. Vox.com slash podcast survey. There's also a link in the show notes. This will really help the show out. So thank you.
1: It's Today Explained. I'm Halima Shah. Today marks Afghan Independence Day, and the Taliban is celebrating by claiming their victory over the United States. But some Afghans want independence from the very militants who took control of Kabul this week. In just the last 24 hours, reports of protests in Kabul started trickling in. As this all unfolded, we got on the phone with CNN's Clarissa Ward, who is in the capital city. And you've probably seen her face if you've been following this story. She's been covering the situation in Afghanistan nonstop.
2: We decide to leave and head for our car. The fighter takes the safety off his AK-47 and pushes through the crowd. Stay Stay behind him. Stay behind him. When we talked to her last
1: night, gobble time, she said for a city that had just been taken over by the Taliban, things were actually pretty calm.
2: They know that the world is watching them right now and they want to get it right. And they're very proud of the fact that they were able to take this capital city of millions of people in a matter of hours without hardly a shot being fired. The one caveat to all of that is that the situation at the airport, of course, is anything but calm.
1: Afghans, convinced the promise of a flight out was their only life ahead, clambering over walkways and tarmac the US spent billions on to maintain
2: its presence the images that we've all seen now of people flooding the runway.
1: One of the US's largest cargo planes taxiing, laden with Afghans who did not want to be left behind.
2: And we were actually there earlier outside the airport, and it's this bizarre contradiction that the Taliban is now guarding America's last foothold in Afghanistan. So they've created a perimeter around the airport and it's very um, chaotic and, and quite dangerous around those checkpoints on the edge because there's so many people trying to get in. Just ahead of us is the gates into the airport and this is the panicked scene. And of- the Taliban is using very harsh tactics to crowd control. So we witnessed them whipping people. We saw them firing rounds. It's a very frantic situation for. You know, even if you have your paperwork, I'd say if you're an Afghan, it's really difficult to get into that airport right now.
1: Clarissa, you have covered this country for over a decade. You have witnessed Afghanistan and multiple chapters of its political history. What does it feel like to be witnessing this Taliban takeover?
2: It feels utterly surreal. I think everybody understood that it was somewhat inevitable at some point, but I don't think anybody could have predicted quite how quickly it would happen, quite how quickly Afghan forces would just melt away. And I started to get a sense of that when I was in Ghazni province, we drove through an Afghan forces checkpoint and there was a small base attached to it and the Taliban were firing at this base. And we just saw suddenly all these Afghan forces, soldiers, pouring out of the base, running down the hill, hailing down a civilian vehicle, jumping in it and speeding off. And that was a real moment for me of like, okay, if this is how Afghan forces are responding to being fired upon, then this really does not bode well in terms of expecting them to hold their ground or even push the Taliban back.
1: What are you hearing from some of the Afghan people who you're talking to who are still trying to get out? What are their options on the table right now?
2: I mean, Halima, literally my phone every two minutes, it feels like I get a message, I get a tweet, I get a WhatsApp. It's just this endless deluge of. Of desperation of people who worked with the US military or the embassy or international organizations or news organizations who thought that they might have months to prepare for this moment and then found that they had days, hours. And now they're frantically trying to get their paperwork together. And you know, it's a complicated thing applying for this SIV, right? This visa that allows you to get to the US. It's a huge amount of bureaucracy. I have spoken to so many people whose applications have been rejected and they don't know why. They have to go and find HR letters, often for jobs that they had four years ago, and that company may not even be here anymore. And it's just endless layers of paperwork. And in this moment, with things as, as frightening as they are for People and especially people who worked closely with the US in, in any number of ways, no one really has the bandwidth to do, sit down and, and do all that paperwork, and no one's getting any guidance certainly not from their government, but even from the US government as to how they. How they should go about doing this, how they need to fill in that paperwork, what their recourse is if their application is rejected. Have you tried yes, yes, of her? course. And what happened?
0: They tell us you have to bring the uh HR later update for the 2021. But it's impossible.
2: So So and what's this, your message to America right it's now? It's
0: our message to America. We help the america people. So that's their jobs to help now right now here. There's a very
3: bad situation. Wow. It
1: sounds like seriously a, a situation of just chaos and desperation what are you hearing from women and girls in particular?
2: It depends where you are in the country and I, I do think that's an important distinction to make. Here in the cities, you talk to just countless women who have worked so hard, who have shaped incredible careers for themselves and, you know, gone to school and gone on to do higher education. It is not easy for a person to work a lot with international organizations and now. No one of them helped me. They're the ones who are just so petrified.
1: I'm thinking about my future, my daughters. What will happen to them if they kill me, two daughters with mother?
2: The Taliban says that they're going to guarantee women's rights, but the devil is in the detail. They won't allow women to wear a simple headscarf. They want them to wear a full facial veil and gloves the reality is they won't allow men and women to work side by side this is what a taliban commander told me the other day and so if you're a female reporter at a, at a news organization in afghanistan how does that work you're going to have a women's newsroom and a men's newsroom i mean it just very quickly you start to see the writing on the wall that it's almost logistically impossible so there's a huge amount of heartache and and bitterness and sadness and deep fear with so many women around this city.
1: Clarissa, you talked about witnessing people being beaten. You've talked about uh, women not really having much hope that they are going to have many rights. Do you have any indication that the Taliban's promise that they will be less brutal than when they were in the 90s will bear out? Is this period of time going to look anything different than the Taliban's first regime?
2: I think that's the really important question, and it's a really tough question to answer right now, but most people do not have a lot of optimism. The Taliban has been telling me again and again during the last couple of weeks that I've been covering them that they have learned from the mistakes of the past, that they don't want to be international pariahs, that they can be more pragmatic, that they will allow women's education. But then, when you listen to the press conference that the spokesperson Zabiullah Mujahid gave—
3: I have already told you about our stand against women.
2: He was very quick to couch all these things in within the realms of what Islam allows. I can do anything
3: according to—within the frame of Islamic principles.
2: And even when he was asked, has the fundamental ideology changed, he said, no, not really. And so you ask yourself, well, if they're this committed to this sort of medieval interpretation of Sharia, where you're talking about an issue like niqab, the full facial veil, which, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I think that the majority of Islamic scholars agree that uh, a full niqab is not wajib, right? It's not essential. It's not required. And so if the Taliban is not willing to be flexible on issues like this, where we see all over the Muslim world, women wearing a simple headscarf, women becoming prime minister at Bangladesh, Pakistan, I mean, their version or vision of Islam is one that is very specific to them, let's say. And if they openly say that that hasn't changed, that hasn't adapted in any way, then how can one really expect to see meaningful change from how they used to be?
1: Clarissa Ward is CNN's chief international correspondent. She spoke to us from Kabul yesterday. Coming up, it's not the 1990s anymore. How will the Taliban operate in 2021? That's in a minute on Today Explained.
0: Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Sometimes you see a really good sale, a really good deal, and you think, huh, what's the catch? You may be used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and thinking, what's the catch? With Mint Mobile, they say, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. $45 upfront payment is required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 GB on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
1: The Taliban has returned to power, a moment they've been waiting for for the last 20 years. The group is older, made of more seasoned fighters, and now even doing press conferences with international media. So we reached out to Vali Nasser. He's a professor of international affairs and Middle East studies at Johns Hopkins University. And I asked him, is the Taliban the same group they were two decades ago?
3: Uh, Yes and no. I mean, there definitely is a younger generation that is doing the fighting on the ground. A lot of these soldiers, commanders that we're seeing on television today were not even born then. But the older generation, the person who will be likely the president or the Amir, uh, whatever they call him, those are basically the early generation or the first generation of the Taliban. But they are different in the sense that, first of all, they've aged. They're not the young hotheads that they were back then. So I think they're a bit more worldly-wise. And therefore, they're not necessarily in the same mold that they were. And if I can give a quick example, they captured Kabul without a single battle, which they accomplished by negotiating, wheeling, dealing, and compromising. And that's not the Taliban that we saw in the 1990s which was completely uncompromising and demanded total victory and then ran roughshod over the people they defeated.
1: Americans have been living with this idea of a war with this group for a very long time. But I imagine many don't know much about the Taliban beyond that. What is their origin story?
3: So before the United States ended up going to Afghanistan, there was another war.
0: Since 1979 the Soviet Union has tried to impose its will on the people of Afghanistan. Despite the death and destruction brought by the Soviets, the Afghan struggle for freedom continues.
3: It did not go very well for the Soviets. Dawn on a February morning in
2: 1989, a 14-mile convoy winds over the northern plains of Afghanistan as the final Soviet troops depart. As Vietnam was for us, Afghanistan
3: has been a sobering experience for the Soviet Union. When the Soviets went, uh, left Afghanistan, the the Mujahideen, the Islamic fighters that pushed them out, could not agree to form a government. They broke into a civil war. Afghanistan collapsed into total chaos and mayhem. Kabul, Afghanistan, once a city of roses and minarets, now a scene from hell. And it was in that context that Mullah Omar, who was a sort of, at that time, a low-ranking cleric and had fought in the war in Afghanistan, was disgusted at the level of chaos, corruption in his hometown around Kandahar. And he resorted to organizing these people who had originally been young orphans of the war, who had been taken into seminaries in Pakistan and had been reared in an environment in which there were no women, there was no regular family life, there was no regular village life, and and, uh, schooled in a very hardened jihadi view of Islam. And he organized them into a fighting force. And the Taliban proved extremely effective. And they were welcomed by people in southern Afghanistan at the very, very beginning because they brought order.
1: And and what do you mean when you say order? Was someone finally, like, picking up the trash and collecting taxes?
3: Well, not not so much trash and taxes, but actually stopping the banditry, stopping the shakedowns, stopping the abuse of the population by anybody who was a gun-toting person that obviously at the beginning was was appealing and was one of the reasons why they were able to grow those very first roots in the pashtun areas of the south
1: can you talk about how the taliban you know under the control of mullah omar made up by this group of orphaned Politically disaffected, religiously extreme young men even ruled when they were first in control of Afghanistan.
3: Rule was extremely rudimentary. The Taliban in the 1990s, uh, for all practical purposes, remained a conquering army on the move that never quite settled down into governance. But where they did, uh, and particularly initially, let's say in 1994-95, it was extremely rudimentary. I mean, jokingly, or, but there's some truth to it, is that their treasury or Afghanistan's treasury under the Taliban in Kandahar constituted of a chest of cash under Mullah Omar's bed. And people would go to him and get money. Wow. Gradually, they began to develop an economy, like they learned how to tax
2: drugs. Opium is by far the most valuable crop Afghanistan produces. In each area they have conquered, the Taliban have imposed a 10% tax
3: on the proceeds of opium sales. They learned how to tax trucking. Elements of state behavior ironically was, was sprouting from below as they found themselves in, in locations. Like if you're going to judge people for Islamic issues or land disputes or divorce, et cetera, you need to create somebody who's a judge, et cetera. So they were learning on the go and they were establishing governance as they conquered territory and moved forward. And it was a by and large a pretty unhappy experience. In other words, the population at the beginning was seeing some order, but very quickly came to see them as a menace. Armed with the Quran and the Kalashnikov, they then introduced their own harsh brand of Islam to the people of Kabul. Not just closing down movie theaters, but torching the film.
1: When does the Taliban let al-Qaeda set up shop in Afghanistan?
3: The war in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, the so-called jihad of the 1980s, attracted a large number of Arab youth who saw this as not a fight against the Soviet Union just in Afghanistan, but as a global jihad. Osama bin Laden first went to Afghanistan when he was barely in his 20s. When the war in Afghanistan ended, Many of them thought, OK, the jihad is over. They went back home, including Osama bin Laden, who went back to Saudi Arabia and for a very brief period tried to join family business. But in many ways, they, they, they had spent too much time in war to be just settled back into uh, you know, civilian life back in their countries. So they began to congregate around causes that would take them back to jihad. They all decided to go back to Afghanistan where it all had begun. You have
0: declared a jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? The US government has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal.
3: And the Taliban didn't see this as a problem. They thought these are fellow jihadis. They had fought against the Soviet Union together. They, they shared the same ideology, which was to you know promote jihad and establish Islamic order, And so they got a a situation in which they could establish bases. And that would really go on until 9-11, when the United States basically saw these bases as a problem, saw the Taliban being accepting of these bases as a problem, and also wanted to punish and uh, capture and kill those who are responsible for 9-11. So that's when basically the, the entire operation and setup came undone.
0: America strikes back. Afghanistan is pounded with bombs and missiles from the air and sea.
3: We are supported by the collective will of the world.
1: And what happens to the Taliban's leadership in that time?
3: So now it becomes a resistance movement in exile. The Taliban gradually begin to abandon the fight. Large numbers of them, including their leadership, escaped to northwest frontier of Pakistan. They may have had foot soldiers who were in different villages in, in Afghanistan, for, but for a period, the Taliban were decimated. Bang in 2001, 2002, the Taliban looked to have been finished. Thanks to our military
0: and our allies and the brave fighters of Afghanistan. The Taliban regime is coming to an end.
1: So obviously the Taliban were not finished. They persisted and now they're back in charge. Who is leading them now?
3: So unlike the earlier time period where there was a single leader, Mullah Omar, who was charismatic, who had a complete domination over the movement, and you could identify that this person owns the movement, is in charge, we don't have that now. We have a group of people who are basically the senior statesmen or elder statesmen of the Taliban. The most senior of them is Mullah Berader, who was in prison in Pakistan for many years during the Obama administration. The Trump administration got him released so that he could lead the talks in Doha.
2: We asked former Taliban commanders about their new front man.
3: He's a very honest and good man. I think he can help the peace process. But he's not Mullah Omar. He doesn't have the same kind of control. One of the open questions about Taliban is that how will a movement that has now different nodes of power within it and is not bound by a single authoritative leader function.
1: What about the second generation that is in positions of power that weren't even alive in the early 90s. What is their
3: outlook? I think the the Taliban as a whole is still a very conservative uh, organization. Uh, Its interpretation of Islam is very conservative. It comes from the hardline seminaries that emerged during the Afghan war. But also they hold on to rural, uh, local Pashtun customs, which are themselves also highly tribal and highly conservative. So these are provincial village young men who've been recruited to fight and have risen in the ranks. Now they've arrived in a major urban city with a sophisticated economy. So there's an element of that provincialism that comes with them. Their attitudes towards women is not just Islamically conservative. It's conservative in the sense of what Pashtun culture in rural areas in, in southern Afghanistan demands of gender relations. And so they bring that baggage with them
1: it seems like the Taliban is trying to show the world that it's starting to assemble a government, and it also seems like Afghans are trying to resist them with some of these recent protests. So what do you think we're going to see over the next few months as the Taliban actually tries to govern?
3: Well, what we were first of all seeing is that they're savvy enough to to understand and absorb uh, U.S. and Western media. They're seeing our obsessions. Uh, of of what are we actually zeroing in right now, which is, uh, is this the same movement and what is it going to do to the women in particular? And so they basically are trying to address that to calm uh, the nerves in the West. But I think beyond that, their most uh, serious challenge they face is to govern. They have won. They have won bigger than they did in the 1990s. They're controlling the whole country. They made deals with everybody to accept them coming into Kabul, uh, the Afghan army is gone. So they now they have an opportunity to establish their rule. So I think they're trying to send not just a message that we're different. They're trying to send a message that we are interested in creating a stable government in Afghanistan. Now, that does not mean that it's going to be uh, nice to women or it's going to be tolerant of a lot of cultural Openings, but, the, but that's the message they're sending, that we don't want to continue being a guerrilla army. Now that, now that the war is over, we want to govern. So I think they're trying to grapple with how do they bring their own imprint, but yet be able to govern over a sophisticated society. I think they understand that they cannot right now with 70,000 fighters uh, assert full Islamic rule over the country. That's just not possible. They don't even have the manpower to to do that. And so they are leaning more on compromise and assurance than on use of the gun. Even if that's a ruse, it does suggest that they're more pragmatic in their thinking than they were in the 1990s.
1: Vali Nasser is professor of international affairs and Middle East studies at Johns Hopkins University. In 2019, he also served as senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative to Afghanistan and Pakistan. I'm Halima Shah. It's Today Explained.